I'm Jessica Dotrieve, and you are listening to Bless Your Heart. We're on episode three, Dear School Cafeteria Workers. And before I get into this episode, I just wanted to say a couple of things. First, that I, again, apologize for taking so long to put out another episode. I did put out a sneak peek last week, and that really helped kick me into gear to put this episode out. And I wanted to share what I've been up to lately, not as an excuse or an explanation, just more as a this is what I've been doing. So I hope I mentioned in episode two, last episode, that I started my own event business. And this month I did a wedding reception that was harvest themed and it was beautiful. It was such a blast. At the end of the night, I was exhausted, but so fulfilled and so happy. It definitely helped reinforce the concept that I have chosen the right path for me. And I'm now working on a wedding that's going to be in March. I am also working part-time at a quilt store and I absolutely love it. I love talking with the customers and just coming up with ideas and this sounds a little creepy, but feeling the fabric. I didn't realize how fabric, quality fabric could feel like silk or just like butter basically. And one of my favorite things to do at the quilt store is cutting the fabric, you know, like yardage. And it means that I actually get to feel the fabric a little bit more. And I really like that. I also was cast in a community play. So I've been working on rehearsals and I should be memorizing lines, but I'll get to that. Miles and I celebrated our first wedding anniversary. We got married October 2nd last year, and it was just really nice to go to a hot springs and celebrate our first year of marriage and have fun and the cake that we had from our wedding you know you freeze the top tier of the cake and have it for your first wedding anniversary i'm happy to say that i covered it enough like layered it in saran wrap and um, i think put it in several ziploc bags and then put it in a tupperware and that helped it from drying out (laughs) And it was delicious and it was kind of fun to remember, oh yeah, this is what it looked like. This is what it tasted like. Cool. I've also been working on several community projects. I've done trivia at a local bar a couple of times this month. Um, Right now I'm working on promo videos for a ladies night this Friday downtown and going swimming or meaning to, trying to. I think I've gone twice this month. need to get better about that. But I just wanted to share those things with you because I am feeling fulfilled, happy. A lot of my friends have been telling me, Jessica, you're getting back to your old self and I feel it. And it's really cool that they're noticing that as well. So I just wanted to share those positive things with you. All right, let's get into this episode. We're talking about school meal programs and I'm going to focus mostly on lunch and a little bit of breakfast, but you can factor in after school snacks too, because it's all together. It's all going to be lumped together. And I'm going to break it down into the history of the programs uh, over the years and politics that came with it. And why does it matter? And then we're going to end with what we could do to help solve some of these issues that we're facing today. So let's get into the history. And I'm going to start putting my notes up as well so you can actually see the references and resources that I'm using so you can check it out yourself. But before I go into the food and meal programs in public education, I wanted to give a very brief, very broad history of public education in general. 
my main resource is going to be bruminate.com, and I hope you check it out. It's going to be in the show notes. So according to Bruminate, perhaps the earliest formal school was developed in Egypt's Middle Kingdom, and this was about 2061 to 2010 BC. But according to legendary accounts in China, the rulers Yao and Shun established the first schools. The first education system was created in the Shia dynasty, which lasted 2076 to 1600 BC. And during this dynasty, government schools really focused on educating students about rituals, literature, politics, music, arts, and archery. Apparently, archery was very important for ancient Chinese aristocrats. Private schools educated students to do farm work and handiwork. Then, Ancient Greece and ancient Rome in the city-states, the education was mostly private, except for in Sparta. And it was mostly geared towards military training, not really what the what we're used to today. And anyone could open a school and decide the curriculum. Parents could choose a school offering the subjects they wanted their children to learn at a monthly fee they could afford. Fast forward a little bit. During the Middle early Middle Ages, the monasteries of the Roman Catholic Church were centers of education and literacy, mostly uh, focusing on preserving the church's selection from Latin learning and maintaining the art of writing. There is a university in Fes, Morocco, that is the oldest existing, continually operating, and the first degree-awarding educational institution in the world. Most schools during this era were founded upon religious principles with the primary purpose of training the clergy. Many of the earliest universities, such as the University of Paris, founded in 1160, had a very, very strong Christian basis. In Northern Europe, this clerical education was largely superseded by forms of elementary schooling following the Reformation. In Scotland, for instance, the National Church of Scotland set out a program for spiritual reform in January 1561, setting the principle of a school teacher for every parish church and free education for the poor. By the 18th century, universities published academic journals. By the 19th century, the German and French university models were established. Let's talk about the United States. The first schools in the 13 colonies opened in the 17th century. The Boston Latin School was the first public school opened in the United States in 1635. To this day, it remains the nation's oldest public school. Early public schools in the United States did not focus on academics like math or reading. Instead, they taught the virtues of family, religion, and community. And girls were usually taught how to read, but not how to write in early America. By the mid-19th century, academics became the sole responsibility of public schools. And keep in mind, too, that in the South, public schools were not really common during the 1600s, in the early 1700s, but affluent families paid private tutors to educate their children. Public schooling in the South was not widespread until the Reconstruction era after the American Civil War but common schools emerged in the 18th century. These schools educated students of all ages in one room with one teacher. And I cannot imagine how that was. I would not want to do that. By 1900, 31 states had compulsory school attendance for students from ages eight to 14. By 1918, every state required students to complete elementary school. The idea of a progressive education 
educating the child to reach his or her full potential and actively promoting and participating in a democratic society began in the late 1800s and became widespread by the 1930s. John Dewey was the founder of this movement. For the first resource about school meal program history, I'll be using the precedent.com timeline for national school lunch program history. And where did we start feeding children in school or, you know, as along with education? When did we factor in food? As with a lot of things, it started in Europe, and it was approximately 1790. In Munich, Germany, Benjamin Thompson began a program to educate and feed hungry children. Then, the earliest programs in the U.S. started about 1853. The Children's Aid Society of New York implemented a new program which served student meals while they attended vocational school. However, other schools and facilities were still not convinced to implement their own meal programs. I mean, it costs money, right? And organization, the logistics of it. Around 1865 in France, Victor Hugo, real fast pause, I hope you know who Victor Hugo is. Think Les Mis, Hunchback of Notre Dame, that guy. In France, he provided funds for warm meals for students of a nearby school. This led to the Society of uh, People's Kitchens in the Public Schools establishment. Their attempt was to provide meals for students who could not afford it. Then in Germany, 1875-ish, the Philanthropic School Society in Hamburg, Germany supplied needy children with free textbooks, clothing, and food. Other societies also began to open up in other cities. So it's not a national thing. It's more of a each city is deciding, okay, we're going to make a society that will take care of feeding these children. Fast forward just a little bit in about 1908 in New York, it was estimated that there were 60 to 70,000 children in New York who were not able to do good schoolwork because they were malnourished. Superintendent of Schools, Dr. William H. Maxwell, made a plea to the Board of Education saying, again, I appeal to you in the name of suffering childhood to establish in each school facilities whereby the pupils may obtain simple, wholesome food at cost price. The first lunchrooms were started in Cleveland. In the summer of 1909, lunchrooms were implemented in seven high schools. Before this, lunches were carted around in lunch wagons. The Board of Education agreed within the contract to supply the necessary equipment, heat, gas, and water for these lunchrooms. In Chicago, from 1910 to about 1916, the school lunch program began when $1,200 was given by the Chicago Board of Education to experiment serving hot lunches to six elementary schools. By 1916, 28 elementary and 31 high schools were in the program. In 1920, school lunches in New York were funded by the Board of Education. So until 1920, school lunches in New York were supported by volunteer organizations. But in the beginning of 1920, the Board of Education took responsibility for the lunch programs in Manhattan and the Bronx. The following year, they took over all the programs within New York. I'm sure you know that 1929 marked the beginning of the Great Depression for the United States. So what did this mean for meals, public school meals? 
school district boards began to get really overwhelmed with the amount of necessary funds for running school meal programs. And the first means of financial aid for these programs came from the Reconstruction Finance Corporation when it granted loans to various towns in Missouri covering the cost of labor for preparing and serving school meals. And this happened about 1932. In 1937, 15 states passed laws in order to authorize local school boards to create and operate lunchrooms. Most schools served the meals at cost, but four states made special provisions for students with financial means. Between 1937 and the start of World War II, school meal programs gained a lot of support and a lot of children were fed. During the war, armed forces needed huge amounts of food supplies, so they took the from the supply allotted to school lunch programs. Within two years, this food supply available for school lunches dropped from 454 million pounds to 93 million pounds. But after the war, the National School Lunch Act is approved in 1946, and we see a huge expansion in school lunch programs. So there was continuous growth. It grew from about 4.5 million children participating to 18.9 million in 1968. Federal support also grew from about $60 million to over $160 million. There was a survey done in March 1968 that found that national enrollment in public and private schools was approximately 50.7 million. Um, about 36.8 million children or 73% are enrolled in schools participating in the National School Lunch Program with an actual average participation in the program of 18.9 million children or about 37% of the national enrollment. So at the time of this survey, free or reduced price lunches were still being provided for about 12% of the number participating. There are a lot of reasons why certain schools didn't participate in meal programs, but the most evident one was that in low-income areas and large urban centers, many of the school buildings just didn't have the facilities to do meal programs and to feed all of these children. A lot of the buildings, and especially the elementary school buildings, were built with the idea that children could and should go home for lunch, and lunchroom facilities were just not available. Now we're going to start talking some politics. In the book, Their Daily Bread, we have some quotes from principals. A principal of a low-income elementary school says, I don't believe in free lunches for welfare people. It is not a welfare or educational responsibility. It is the parent's responsibility. And another school principal said, we have a specific allocation of free lunches. There are always more children to feed than the funds allow. We have a policy that no child goes hungry. If they can't get a lunch, then they get milk and crackers. The unfortunate result was that children in higher poverty areas were going without proper nutrition. In April 1968, the Citizens Board of Inquiry into Hunger and Malnutrition publicly revealed the findings in their book, Hunger USA. They said, we have found concrete evidence of chronic hunger and malnutrition in every part of the United States where we have held hearings or conducted field trips. The board reported estimating that at least 10 million persons were suffering from hunger and malnutrition. There was also a CBS documentary that was put out in May 1968 that drew attention to families that were living on incomes at or below poverty level. 
While people were divided on whether or not it should be the school's responsibility or even the federal government's responsibility to feed children, many people were getting upset that children were going to school and not being fed. So in May of 1969, President Johnson pleaded with Congress to do something. So the Food and Nutrition Service was created and it was created within the Department of Agriculture. And surprise, surprise, teachers and administrators were able to tell the difference when students were fed and nourished and the decline of behavior issues. Shocker, I know, right? So from 1969 to 1981, national school meal programs were expanding and they were gaining support. There were still people that were criticizing it, saying that it's not the school's responsibility or even the federal government's responsibility to make sure that kids were fed. It should be the parents' responsibility. According to a September 2016 Time article, in 1981, as part of an attempt to curtail government waste, the Reagan administration slashed federal school lunch spending by $1.5 billion and attempted to make up for the reduced budget by shrinking lunch portions reducing the number of children available for free or reduced lunch and famously declaring that ketchup was a vegetable in order to meet nutrition standards. I cannot imagine being a teacher and hearing that news and seeing the effects of that. So those of you who were teaching 1981, my heart goes out to you. With less federal support, school lunches in the 1980s and 1990s became increasingly privatized and nutrition standards often took a backseat to the bottom line. The same period also saw childhood obesity rates in the United States skyrocket. School lunches were thrust to the forefront of the debate over healthy kids. The patchwork of regulation remaining regarding food safety and wholesomeness led time to declare that many school districts were flunking lunch. In 2010, in an attempt to return to the original intentions of school lunch programs, Congress passed the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act of 2010, which allows the Department of Agriculture to overhaul school meals to meet new nutrition standards. While no one can deny the importance of better eating for growing minds, critics claim the program has produced unpalatable foods that lead to food waste, smaller earnings for lunch programs, and even more kids going without lunch those in favor of the reforms claim simply that it's working. A 2016 report declares that in spite of the hubbub in cafeterias across the country, the new act is indeed providing kids with healthier food at school. It's funny because around that time I was in college and I worked at a preschool that was affiliated with the university and I remember one of my favorite jobs was to actually do the cooking for the kids and I remember adding spices and of course cinnamon to you know the pancakes or the french toast sticks or the oatmeal and I remember getting into trouble because I was told kids need to know what plain food tastes like and I said okay, first of all, there are other people that cook for them on the days I'm not here. Also, they won't eat it. Therefore, they won't get those nutrients unless it actually tastes good. So it's kind of interesting to be doing research and to recall my own experiences with this issue. I highly recommend people go to cdc.gov just to see the specific nutrition requirements that schools have to meet if they are participating in the national school lunch program or any meal program. They even have specifications 
to give students adequate time to eat their meal. So for breakfast, it has to be at least 10 minutes and for lunch, it has to be at least 20 minutes. And that's just sitting down time. That doesn't account for going through the line or anything like that. Other standards include with breakfast, veggies can be offered as a substitute for fruit if the school is participating in this program. Schools have to offer students at least two different types of fluid milk each meal. A local school wellness policy is required for all schools participating in these programs and they have to be assessed and updated at least every three years. So even with you know budget slashing and with things like COVID, these schools still have to meet those standards if they're participating in the programs. I was getting dizzy just looking at the requirements that these people have to meet, these cafeteria workers have to meet. And if that wasn't stress enough, cafeteria workers and schools are under constant scrutiny by the public for the meals that they provide. I was looking at Facebook posts. I was talking with people to just, you know, get a lot of resources for this podcast episode. And it just curled my hair with all of the negativity that is being directed at cafeteria workers. And uh, I remember like a couple of years ago, a local school served a hot dog on a tortilla Students were taking pictures and they were sending them to their parents. They were posting about it. There was just general outrage and this exploded. You had one side saying, well, if you want your child to eat better, you should feed them yourselves. And another side saying, well, I pay taxes. My child deserves a nutritious meal. We count on the school for that. What are they doing? It was just a reflection of current politics and current issues. That's why I chose this topic for this episode, because according to the USDA, school lunches are important because they provide one third of the nutritional needs for most children for the day. That's just lunch. If they provide breakfast as well, that's half of the nutritional needs for most children for the day. That's a huge responsibility. Unfortunately, it isn't always with children and nutrition in mind. For instance, the Food Guide Pyramid was mostly sponsored by by agriculture. So what are they going to want people to eat more of? Cereals, grains, right? So that's why it was at the bottom. That's why it was the biggest. Then in 2010, we get My Food Pyramid. And then most recently we have my plate. So they're just trying to find balances and trying to not have the politics so evident. According to the Education Data Initiative in 2019, the National School Lunch Program served 29.7 million children daily. Of that 29.7 million, 20.2 million students were on the free lunch program. That's why it matters. That's why we should find some solutions to these issues. And I realize this is not an easy fix. Everyone has their own opinion and you just can't snap your fingers and make this issue go away. You can't really do that when so many stakeholders are involved and invested in this. I'm coming from a teaching standpoint because as admin said, we were on the front lines and I saw what happens when kids don't eat and I, I saw them fade or, you know, academically just not do well. I wish people could actually discuss this issue and find viable solutions instead of just preaching their own agendas or their own viewpoints. In the meantime, what can people do to help? Because let's be honest, at the end of the day, what really matters. 
students matter. And for better or for worse, public schools have become centers to meet those nutritional needs for students. And we can't reverse that anytime soon. So you wanna do something that's actually meaningful and going to maybe help the situation? Quit with the negativity and the blame games and ask why. Why is a hot dog served on a tortilla for my child's lunch? What's going on? What can I do to help? Offer to volunteer in the cafeteria or go to the school board superintendent and principals and ask what they need and how the community can help. Maybe we need to be more aware of budget and what finances, what resources are being put into the meal programs. Focus on the positives and celebrate the little wins. So a lot of schools right now are doing school gardens so they're teaching students how to grow things and how to harvest. I have a dear friend who's a farmer and he has this quote unquote garden and he invites us all the time to come over and grab some fresh produce. One time we invited some family friends with their kids and it was so cool to see the boys just dig up the potatoes and learn about onions and corn and <laughs> even tomatillos and see you know this is where your food comes from and to learn about that and that's what we should really celebrate like school gardens get kids more involved and maybe you could be more involved if you've got extra produce and you don't know what to do with it give it to the school if you have seeds take them to the school if you would really like to show kids how to grow food or something go to the school main thing is Assume positive intent, and if you see an issue, be solution-oriented. The absolute number one main reason for doing this podcast is to talk about issues and promote potential solutions. Get the word out, because if we cannot discuss the issues that are facing our educational world today, how are we going to improve it? And that concludes episode three, Dear School Cafeteria Workers. If you have any ideas for future podcast episodes or anybody that you know I should contact to interview or even just some feedback for me, please, please email me at J-E-S-S underscore T Dotrieve, D-A-U-T-E-R-I-V-E at hotmail.com. As a theater person, I love feedback and I would really welcome any communication. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you continue to do so. Shout out to my mom, Kit, for being my one and only patron and shout out to JT for mentioning that you actually listen and that you're excited to hear more. I'm Jessica Dotrieve and this has been Bless Your Heart.